Welcome to the Max Muth Theatre and Performance Podcast. We are back from our brief hiatus with a new episode discussing six new shows from Beyond Broadway in New York City. Enjoy the show. Okay, are we ready to start? We are. Do we remember how to do this? Yeah. One, two, let's go. Let's start with introductions, Liz. I am Liz of Fuck Yeah Great Plays. Jose. Jose from Stage Buddy. And I'm Lindsay from Maximu. We've been off because we had to move, and now we're in a new location. We hope it sounds okay. If you have feedback on the sound, as always, let <laughs> us know on Twitter. <laughs> we have had a rigorous couple of weeks going to shows, and now we are here to talk about what we've seen and what we thought about them Starting with the Neo-Futurists, Liz. Yeah, so we went and saw the Neo-Futurists present the great American drama. So as you may have known, it's kind of happened in the last month, uh, the Neos got the rights pulled for Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind. So they are back in the production incubator. Did you know that? Mm-mm. Oh, yeah. That's why I went. Yes. Uh, Greg, Greg Allen, who is the founder of the Neos, uh, said that the productions weren't diverse enough. And so he pulled the rights for Chicago and New York to do too much. Light makes baby go blind. I mean, I think there's a lot of dispute there's, over the reasons yes, for him I'm, pulling that. that is it's quite that is, a controversial. That is the reason he has said there's uh, many other differing opinions that you can find online that I'm more inclined to believe. But. It's neither here nor there. So (laughs) (laughs) the Neos are developing new work. And this sort of came out of it. So the great American drama, they basically crowdsourced a play. They surveyed, I want to say, 800 people, 500 to 800 around there, um, about what makes a play successful. And then they wrote a piece incorporating as many of those suggestions as possible to create the best great American drama. And then at the end of the night, you get a card and you can write in which scene you thought was least effective, and then it would be cut before the next production and replaced. So they were constantly rewriting and finessing, which is sort of what they do. So I love the idea of this. And you guys know that I love the Neos so much. They're so close to my heart. I don't know if this was 100% successful in what they were trying to do, but I also wonder if it was what I went in expecting. I guess because it was called The Great American Drama, I was expecting one cohesive piece. Mm -hmm. But of course, that's not really what they do. They do a lot of short pieces and sketches and reflections. and So it was a lot of that. So it never felt like one full play to me. So there were parts that I enjoyed more than others. Lindsay, you want to jump in? I have some other thoughts. but So I thought this was a very brilliant premise that needed to be done to analyze the disconnect between what audiences think they want and what they actually enjoy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They had gotten all this feedback that they projected onto the screen, and it was very funny at times to see people asking for things that made me like recoil in horror. It was things like, like have a celebrity guest star, have corporate sponsorship. What did you write on the survey when they asked what you wanted to see? In the show. I actually didn't do the survey. Oh, okay. So I went and I'd made no requests, I guess. <laughs> what? Oh, I didn't write anything either. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because I wrote specifically in all caps, no Hamilton references. <laughs> well, you lost because a lot lose. of people wrote in, yeah. do Hamilton, which they actually did uh, a fair use version, which was they about like the 30, intro, right? like yeah. 30 seconds of the beginning of Hamilton. That was it. So I thought this was a really interesting premise that on paper sounded like it would produce something I wouldn't like, but I actually really enjoyed the breakdown of their responses to theater audiences. And 
we saw it very late. Liz and I saw it very late in the run. So the New York Times went and wrote what I think was a pretty lukewarm review of the performance. And that got referenced throughout the performance later in the run. As did other reviews uh, of the show, positive because of course and negative. They're crowdsourcing, so they got to take into account the public's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all reactionary to the audience, which again I think is a really, really interesting idea to examine, and it's exactly the kind of work that I expect the neo futurists to do. It was interesting to observe that the creator of this idea, who's also one of the performers in it projected in the performance that we saw that he was somewhat disappointed with how things had developed with the show. And I felt kind of badly for him in his, my perception of how he felt about things were that things had not gone well and that he was disappointed in having to discover how horrible theater audiences are. <laughs> yeah. How horrible humanity is, how horrible the public at large is. And so it was, I just thought it was super revealing, very interesting, and it needed to be done. And I'm super glad the Neos did it. And I thought it was successful. I thought that he came to the conclusion I would have anticipated him coming to, which is that you cannot make your art in response to what people are asking for and in response to public opinion polls. Mm -hmm. You have to pursue other ends and then be surprised by how people respond to it. Yeah, the most illuminating part of the show, and we saw this, what, very early February, and I'm still thinking about it, is... Of course, one of the things people said was, you got to have nudity on stage to make people want to buy tickets. And they must have had a scene that featured nudity earlier in the run. Because even when you walk in the lobby, there's a sign that says, warning you about lights and nudity and smoke and all those things they have to warn you about. Um, But there wasn't any nudity. And instead, there was this piece where the the creator of the show, I wish, what is his name? Uh, Connor sits down and talks about how they had a scene where he and one of the actresses... I saw the nudity scene. ...would get naked. Okay. So they they had that scene, and people could yell out, stop, right? Okay. Because nudity and consent and stuff, so they were like, we're going to get naked, and people can tell us to stop. And I guess before we had seen it, maybe a couple of days before, people had had voted the scene out because they didn't like it. And so in its place was a scene with Connor and the other actress who would have gotten naked talking about what it takes emotionally to get naked on stage. And people said they wanted it. And then they turned around and said no. And he felt guilty for trying to force something on an audience Mm. that they didn't want, especially with nudity. And then why is his nudity shameful or something oppressive to someone else? But the whole the whole discussion around that of like, I gave you what I wanted you, I gave you what you wanted. You don't want it anymore. Now what do I do? Like that disconnect and consent, especially when it comes to nudity, I thought was fascinating. And to me, that was the heart of this show in a nutshell. Like when I saw it, it was interesting. Apparently someone in my audience really wanted to see Connor naked. Cause there's that also that moment near the end of the show where they do like audience, like, instant like audience requests right with the bell oh yeah they yeah. have like cards yeah yeah so like when people in the audience at that moment had put in like their cards someone specifically said i want connor to get naked when like a few scenes before he someone had yelled stop when the it was the uh the black actress and yes. connor so when she was about to take off her uh bra i think someone yelled stop which I thought, and it was um, uh, like a Nicole man. Nicole Hill is the other actor. Yes, yeah. it was a man. Because I, I was also thinking, I was watching this and I was not, uncomfortable is not the right word, but I was, how strange it is to be seeing, you know, like a white gay man, because he talks a lot about mm-hmm. his sexuality and, uh, you know, an African-American woman, you know, like taking their clothes off to entertain audience members it was i don't it was it made me feel very like i don't know weird and i i wanted them to stop as well but then someone was like car get naked near the end of just like the poor guy was like he couldn't escape so it's really fascinating that they cut that scene 
by the time you saw it. Because I thought that scene was really powerful. Because you could see them, like, you could see, you could practically see, like, their sweat. And, like, maybe I'm, like, projecting, but I thought I could see them, like, please have someone ask us to stop. Yeah, that the whole discussion around it was just fascinating to me. And it's, but, I mean, I've been in a rehearsal room with actors who have to get naked, and how you negotiate that is very, very delicate. And so, I don't know. I just, I keep thinking about that. And to me, that was really the heart of the piece, is like what you were saying, giving the audience what they wanted. Isn't so always successful. This <laughs> is one of the Neo's main stage shows. As Liz mentioned in the beginning, they're no longer doing too much light makes the baby go blind. But they have replaced that show with a three-month period of experimental shows that they're doing in conjunction with the Neos in Chicago and San Francisco. Right. So that show, Too Much Light, no longer exists, but in its place, a different show exists called the... It's just the Neo show, I think, The Neo right show. And so it runs on the same weekend schedule, and so you can still see the neo-futurists doing their thing, and they've kind of pegged this three-month window for experimentation to figure out what the new form for the ongoing weekly show will be. So it's an interesting time to stop in and check them out. Yeah. I would like to throw out a question, I guess, for, for both of you, but also for listeners. And it was something that struck me when I was watching the show. And it's that I really am like the least versed person in stand-up and improv because I've always assumed that I won't enjoy it. And in a way, the show involved a lot of improv and a lot of coming up with stuff like on the spot. So it made me wonder, wait a second, so does that mean that I would actually enjoy going to see improv? So, you might. So I just want to throw like that is, out there. Yeah, I think when people think of improv, I mean, if I could talk about improv for a while, but I think the improv that people think of right now is like short form game who's on is anyway type stuff. And that's not all of what improv is. There's a lot of long form and storytelling now. There's a lot of people experimenting with what that form is. So I think you'd probably enjoy something maybe a little more modern improv. That's really stressful. Like I, I was stressed <laughs> for them. We could take you to musical improv. That's a thing. That's a thing? Yeah. That sounds even more stressful, but I'll go. Yeah, no, it's very stressful. I couldn't do it. I mean, I couldn't <laughs> do regular improv, but uh, but yeah, we could go do some musical theater improv. I'm up for that, yeah. definitely. Okay, next up, Jose. So our next show is En el Nombre de Salomé, playing a repertorio español. It's a show based on a novel by Julia Alvarez, which is a fictitious account of the life of uh, Dominican poet Salomé Ureña de Enríquez who uh, lived in the 19th century and was one of the key players in the Dominican literary scene. Also, an uh, early feminist, even if I'm sure that back then people even didn't even think of feminism, right, the way that we do. And she was also, she also founded the first um, college for, for women in the Dominican Republic. So the show is seen through her daughter, Camila, like years after her mom has passed away. And she's telling her mom's story to two people, her niece and a driver. And basically what she's trying to do is she has never found the way to live up to how famous and how important her mom was. And I thought this, this was so refreshing because usually when we see this, these types of stories, it's always a guy who's like, oh, my dad was so much cooler than I was. So for starters, the fact that it's about two women I found like endlessly fascinating and so refreshing. And so the the play basically then goes back and forth in time. It has this like very complex uh time travel structure, I would say, in which we don't know exactly what parts of Salome's life are true or what parts her daughter is making up because she thinks that's what happened or because she wishes that's how things happen. Because we also see I don't want to like give too much away, but there's coups and like constant like political like disasters going on around them. Yeah, they constantly don't know who's in charge. Yeah, and I I also found it so relevant to today. Like, there's this particular line in the show when um, Camila is with her brother and they're seeing how fascism is rising in Europe and all over the world, and Camila says to her brother. 
it's strange that now the rest of the world is looking more and more like our countries. That is something that I have been telling Americans all the time <laughs> lately. Because, I mean, I did grow up in a part of the world where the military could like overthrow our government. Like my, my grandma lived her entire life pretty much in a dictatorship. And the fact that in America, we are hearing those same kinds of vibes, I guess. It was so scary. And I, I want to highlight particularly, one of the things that I love about Repertorio is that obviously because it's like such a cohesive like company, it's the same actors who do all the shows pretty much like Every new show, it's the same actress. And the actress who plays Camila, uh, her name is Sulema Clares. Last time I saw her in a musical a few months ago, she was playing like a 70-year-old woman. And she was flawless as that. And I've seen her play so many different roles. So I love the fact that in, in this play, her character Camila starts being 79, then goes back to being nine years old, And then she does, she plays this woman at every age and she does it so wonderfully. Uh, so I, I want to applaud Miss Miss Clades because I think she's amazing. Like I will go see anything that she's in. She's mind blowing. So what do you guys well, think? Well, you mentioned the writer and the director before we yes, move on. Yes, of course. The writer is uh, Marco Antonio Rodriguez and the show was directed by Jose Sayas. Liz? I'm not sure... I got as much out of this as I wanted to. I really wanted to like it because I really liked the performers who were in it. I really enjoyed the actors. I felt like all the flashing backwards and forwards cut a lot of conflict and cut like undercut a lot of the tension for me um, because it, we would flash forward and then flash back and be like, oh, but now we're done with that. I was like, wait, 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 wait. You know, like she would, there's a whole thing where she's signing a different, she's publishing these radical uh, poems and she doesn't want to publish them under her own name because of her, her father's uh, military, he's in the military, right? Yeah, it's military power. So she publishes them under another name, which seems like it's going to be a thing. And then we flash forward a little bit and we flash back to it and there's like oh yeah and then I just then I just told everyone that it was I wrote the poems I was like wait but <laughs> but what happened like that seems like a big deal or another I don't know I guess spoiler alert but she has sort of a budding relationship with a woman she meets in college in Minnesota and her brother spots them and that seems like a very tense moment and then we flash forward it's like Oh, and then after that summer, yep, she just, uh, my lover went and married a woman, and I guess that's just how it goes. I was like, wait, but but what about that? <laughs> like, that seems very important. So I, I think, like you were saying, the, the slow crawl in of fascist regime and the way that affects everything I thought was very interesting and very relevant I just wanted to see more of the conflict. I wanted a little more of a story instead of just a narration of this woman's life. I don't have much to add. I just want to make explicit that this play is in Spanish and that there are, it is subtitled with individual screens at each seat. Anything anyone else has to add? Um, something that I you were saying this right now is that I, I completely agree that it undercuts a lot of it, but also it did something that rarely happens to me, and it's that it made me want to go research what had happened and who this woman was because I actually uh, interviewed the director he told me that there's there are actually schools in New York City called Salome Ureña oh. and most people don't know who she is she's like there are people I'm sure who are going to the Salome Ureña school right now and they know nothing about her so that's cool yeah so I'm assuming like when you're trying to cram someone's life into any sort of like entertainment there are going to be lots of like like missing links and stuff. I completely agree because at one point wasn't she like dressed like a man or did I imagine that? No, I mean, she was dressed a little masculine, I think with the blazers and the vest, but always a skirt, I think. Because for, for a second, I thought that she was going to write them under, didn't she write them in, under a man's name? Uh, Maybe I'm making that up. Er, uh, yes. I can't remember the name. It began with an H. I just can't remember the, the name that she wrote it under. But yeah, like that was, that's a big plot point. That's a big yeah. thing that, just gets resolved off off stage. Yeah. But and, and, and the one last thing that I really wanna wanna add is that I, I really want to applaud Repertorio Español because they are making this conscious effort to make people in America realize that 
Latin America is not like a monolithic, you know, like structure. Latin America has a million, not a million, but there's a bunch of countries in Latin America. And at least for the past two years, each of their plays have been about different countries and done by different playwrights. So they are avoiding that notion that, you know, like Latin America is Univision and Telemundo. Mm -hmm. No, like each of the countries contributes something different to the whole structure and to the world. So the fact that they're doing a play about a Dominican poet is kind of mind-blowing, I think. Yeah, I would, I would definitely go back. I want to see more of their, their work. Okay, next up is Girl X, which we saw at Japan Society. This is written and directed by Sagura Yamamoto and performed by the theater collective Han Chu Hui. The two performers' names are... Kazuki Oahashi and Sachiro Nomoto. So this is an hour-long piece that I would put more towards the performance art side of the spectrum than the narrative play side. Visually, I thought it was stunning. There are these projections and the words are all projected onto the screen in both Japanese and English. And then there are two performers who recite what I would call a poem, a long, long narrative poem. And they also engage in movement to illustrate the story. And the projections are also, some of them are animated. I just thought... Visually, this was a really beautiful piece, and I thought the performers were dynamic. I th also thought it was it was beautiful to listen to. They spoke in Japanese. It was very lyrical. There was a, a I was going to call it a soundtrack, but I don't know if that's the right term. Like a soundscape? musical accompaniment in the <laughs> world of performance art versus cast recordings on Broadway. So apologies to everyone who I've mortally offended. <laughs> I just thought it was very lovely. I couldn't begin to tell you the narrative of this piece. I just have no idea, but that didn't really matter to me. I walked away pretty pleased with my experience. What did you guys think? Yeah, I thought visually it just it blew me away what you can do with two people and a projector. And I got to say, I have seen dance pieces in New York that have tried to do something like this, and this just blew everything else out of the water. Uh, it's a lot of work with color and shadows and the way their bodies interact with light in just amazing, smart, beautiful ways. And that to me, like, like you said, the story I could kind of follow. I kind of got where we were going, but visually, just that's all I needed. Jose, I'm, I'm gonna agree with everything you're saying. I was like, I was so impressed. I was like, oh my god, you can do this kinds of shows all over the world, and you only need a projector. I mean, obviously, you need to be talented to pull it off, and you need to be a good writer and all that, but. Ideally, I mean, like, people in the third world can get a projector and, like, do a show, and, yeah. Yeah. I was most impressed. So, usually when you have something like that, you'd have a little spike mark on the floor. It says, you know, when you do this, you need to be here, because that's how you're going to get in the right spot. There's none of that on the floor. They just, like, have it. They have, there's a, a set of lines on the floor that show the projector throw, which I think is kind of what they were aligning themselves with, but, my God. They would like the screen would break into three panels and everyone would be in the right spot. It was just mind-boggling. I I also really appreciated the fact that as with most Japanese art that I've been exposed to, whether it's like films or television or music, it's like there's like this, this journey that like it starts at a very you know like violent I want to say like place and it keeps like rising and rising and rising, it keeps getting like more aggressive. There's so much going on, and then by the end there's. Not necessarily a lesson, but you leave the the piece like in a complete like state of Zen, and you're like, oh, because they're like, you know, like we expose you to so much things, but then here's take away some peace, and I'm like, oh, thank you so much. Like I I because I thought when I was watching the show that I would need like 
vodka afterwards, but then they ended on that beautiful with, note. With the rain, yeah. this projected yeah. rain. That animation was gorgeous. Yeah. Okay, moving on. Beardo, Liz. Beardo. Uh, it's the... <laughs> Well, it's not really new. They did it in 2011, but it's a new-ish musical. I think it's New York premiere, right? Is it New York premiere? I thought so. Am I wrong about that? Mm -hmm. By Dave Malloy of Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. And written by Jason Craig, directed by Ellie Heyman. Uh, They're doing it out at St. John's Lutheran Church, which is way out in Brooklyn. But it is a perfect venue for this piece. Sort of like everything else Dave Malloy has done. It's based on a very small snippet of history, went back to Russia, and it's about Rasputin. And specifically, Rasputin's ingratiating himself into the royal court through sex. And there's definitely a bigger story with Rasputin and and Russian royalty at that time, but it chooses this one moment, this one angle, uh, to sort of get in. I'm trying not to do all this, all the dick puns um, <laughs> because there's plenty in this show. Um, yeah, so it's at this church uh, in Brooklyn that is sort of falling apart. There's a lot of scaffolding. The paint's peeling. It's lit with a lot of candles. It has this very reverent feel. And... I think if you enjoy Great Comet, you will enjoy this show. I felt a little bit of disconnect between the first act and the second act, style-wise. I kind of... The first act, I felt it felt very small and folky, which wasn't bad. It was just that felt one. And then the second act, we have a disco number that opens the, the second act, and then we go into a dream ballet that's sort of based on Black Swan that also involves a murder plot. It's great. Um... <laughs> I sort of I, I wish the styles had melded a little bit more but I, th- I think it's fantastic I really really enjoyed it I you know it reminded me a lot of seeing uh, Great Comet back when it was in its tiny little you know tent space I can find no evidence this is a New York premiere so I withdraw that comment I don't know if it is <laughs> Jose, what did you think about it? I I just want to like be like a like a little schoolboy and spoon over Damon. I was trying not to, but I I could. Damon, but how can Damon you Nuno, who plays who plays Rasputin, and the moment he started literally charming the pants off of women, I was like, oh, I get it. That's why he got as much done as he did and with then, having literally no qualifications yeah. for anything whatsoever. He just. Charmed everybody. He charms the men. He charms women. He charms uh, the czar, a delightful Willie Appleman. Um, like everyone has a crush on Rasputin, and I get it. He's so charming, and he's so sexy. And he knows how to sing. Yes, and he's like all like Ugh. his hair is like so perfect and like he's bad like all hair floppy kinda, hair. Yeah. Oh my god! But what I what I found like extremely interesting about this show also was I grew up with the Anastasia cartoon. Where like Rasputin is like this like monster, you know, like he has like all the henchmen and like the gargoyles come out to help him. He's fucking horrible, <laughs> and he's like he he's trying to kill Anastasia, which I guess we're gonna see Rasputin as well when Anastasia opens on Broadway. Yeah. But anyway, but then we have this take on this guy that's not about how ugly because he was not very attractive in real life, Rasputin. Uh, but there, so then we have this take on this guy about how charming and how seductive and how amazing he was. And it opened up like my mind, I guess, to see history in a way that I had never thought of before. And I'm like, oh my God, you can probably do this about everyone. And I'm sorry that I keep bringing this person up all the time, but it made me really wonder, oh God, wouldn't it be like terrifying if a hundred years in the future, people took 45 and made like a, a beardo out of him but right but yeah i mean what what's most compelling to me he's a lot the way he comes into power is a little bit sex appeal and a little bit like televangelist yeah you know he just says 
a lot of nonsense words and people believe it because he's so charming. And I mean, to Rasputin could have been very ugly and still very charming and sexy. Mm. That happens. There are people like that. (laughs) This play is everything I want from theater in New York. I want (laughs) to go to a place I've never been, be completely uninformed about what to expect and then be totally thrilled with incredibly talented people working in a way that I completely did not expect. I just, this is exactly the show that four years ago would have happened and I would never have heard about because I wasn't in the community. You know, I mean, just, I just think about all the people I know in New York City, all the lawyers and investment bankers and doctors and teachers and social workers who aren't going to see this because it's being put on by a nonprofit theater company at a church in Greenpoint. And I just, I thought this was so great on just about every level. Mm -hmm. I also want to share my favorite part that did not involve Rasputin. (laughs) was the end of the first act where all of a sudden you have to literally turn your back on the court to figure out what's going on. And it blew me away. Like Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't expecting that was beautiful, beautiful. I think the use of the space is amazing. Yeah. They really do a great job. You also wonder, you know, like it's all the decay part of the building or is it the production design? Yeah, it's we walked we walked in we were going, okay, is that scaffolding supposed to be there? Is it artful scaffolding or is it necessary scaffolding? Yeah, yeah I thought this show was excellent yeah. and I would urge folks to go check it out. Yeah, I want to I want to go back. I want there to be a recording. I want all of those things. I want to see everything Damon does. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't blame you. There's a great YouTube video that I posted, by the way. And also everything that this company does, because every single show that I've seen by Pipeline has been absolutely amazing. So they did a clown bar. Which was terrifying. Which was awesome. It was (laughs) great. I have differing opinions on clown bars. It was great. I mean, as an experience, it was great. It was so so unique, but it was terrifying. Yeah. Okay, next up, Jose. Next up, we have Everybody. It's the new show by Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, who keeps like destroying our minds every time we go see one of his shows. <laughs> this one's happening at the Signature Theater, and it's directed by Lila. I don't know how to pronounce your name, Lila, so I'm sorry. Bauer. I think so. Okay. So, uh, as it is explained to us, this show is a morality play. And the best way that my tiny mind could find to describe it is that it's kind of like that Pixar movie Inside Out where like all the emotions have you know are represented by by characters so in here we have the journey of everybody who in in our performance because well at the at the beginning of the show also there's uh what do you call that thing like a a bingo ball yes yeah where uh all the actors know all the parts. So at the beginning of each performance, they decide who's going to be play randomly decide who's going to play each part. I'm assuming that. So everybody gets to play everybody. I'm already confused. Uh, so <laughs> anybody can play everybody. Oh yeah. There yeah. We go. That's, that's better. So at our performance, cause we all saw it the same night, uh, everybody was played by Brooke Bloom. So basically what happens is that everybody gets told by death that it's everybody's time to, you know, like, pack their bags and go to the afterlife. <laughs> but she has to find, do I, what was the pronoun for everybody? I don't them. Know, them, yeah. They have to find someone who's willing to come with them on this journey. And I mean, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that no one really wants to die. So it's very hard for everybody to find someone to come with them. They go and talk to friendship and... Uh, or some Cousin of and yeah. family. Kinship, right? Love. Yeah, and, and no one wants to go. So it's, yeah, it's the, the whole play puts you in this, like, existential, like, oh, God, I don't know my terms today, but what are those, like, things, the floating tanks? 
where you like float and it's dark. Sensory deprivation tank. Yes. It's like that where all you're allowed to do is think about your mortality. However, because it's Brandon, it's so well written and so funny. Like I found myself at times wanting to, I don't know, like crawl under my covers and never leave because, oh God, I'm going to die and no one wants to come with me. But also it was so funny and so warm and all the actors, the ensemble was great. Everyone brought, I, I don't know, like I, I re- if I could afford it and if I could have the time, I would want to go see the show and see every single person I saw on that stage get to play everybody. Yeah, because I mean, all I could think afterwards, I mean, I thought I have a lot to say about this show and theatrical history and stuff, um, but how different the show, because our everybody was a young white woman and a young white woman facing her own mortality is different than say the elderly white man who's also in the company or the young black woman. Like there, there is a very different feel for each of those people facing their own death. Um, so everybody is based around what's considered one of the first plays, which is every man which is a morality play, and it's very similar to this. Every man has to go to each of the virtues and try and take the virtues with him because it's every man, and all the virtues can't go. The key difference that I was so tickled by, I guess, between what Brandon Jacob Jenkins has done and what uh, every man does, in every man, uh, every man gets a partner in the afterlife and it's good deeds and he brings his good deeds with him and that's how he gets to heaven and that's the moral of the play. Oh, I like that. And in this one, nobody (laughs) goes with everybody. Everybody has to leave everything behind and can only go alone. No, two things go with everybody. Which one? No. Love and bad deeds. Love doesn't go. Love goes into the space. Does love go into the space? Yeah. Yeah. And then bad deeds jumps. Oh my God, you're right. Bad deeds went. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that's still a very, a very key difference. Yes. I mean, I didn't see it having that history. So that's yeah. very interesting to know that there's a way to distinguish the conclusion of this play with the conclusion of that other play. I thought it was fascinating that it paired what I considered to be a very traditional morality tale with this absolutely form-breaking structure of the play. And I loved the form-breaking structure, which I'm not going to detail, but just to say that I was surprised frequently And yet at the end, I found myself really hung up on this conclusion that like the thing that endures is, I guess, your love, romantic based relationship, not familial love, but love by choice. And then you're also haunted by your bad deeds. Hmm. Oh, I didn't think it was romantic. I thought it was just love in the general sense. And maybe it felt like that because at the end it was a young white woman and a young white man. No, I think the way reason I concluded that was because of the way in which it wasn't kinship. Right. So, and it wasn't friendship. It was different category of love and it was also a type of love that can veer into abuse. And so that's why I took that message away from the play. In that kind of saying, that kind of traditional saying of like, on your deathbed, you're not going to have wished that you had worked more or acquired more things, but it's going to be your relationships that matter. That's very much the morality that I took away from this play, which is not necessarily a morality that I am in disagreement with, but I do have some objection to reinforcing the idea that there are 
it is imp- I, I know the play was not saying it is important that we couple, but it kind of was, and that is a uh, idea that I just uh, it just as a woman in 2017 having pushed back against the like prioritization of romantic relationships in popular culture and the like the most important thing for you to do in life is to find a spouse there's like the morality of this tale i was like really that's the lesson and i'm sure there you will probably respond and people listening to me respond by saying that's not what he was saying but it kind of is what he's saying i'm about to pull a page from like the oprah handbook but the love in the play i thought was love for oneself like loving yourself because when love shows up he tells everybody i've been here all this time and you just ignored me and i never actually thought about you know couples because oh boys or girls i guess whatever anyway couples suck anyway uh but i thought i mean loving yourself that's what you take with you like your love that you had for yourself and maybe this is all again like how we choose to project ourselves on the show because i know for a fact that i in fact the very the two very strange things happened to me the day i saw the show one was i had this kind of long discussion with someone about long story short how i'm hispanic and i should be like in love with my cousins and uncles and all my family mm-hmm. right and I remember telling this person specifically, like the family that you that matters is not the one that's related to you by blood, but the one that makes you feel like home, whether you were, you know, born with them or not. So I yeah, so like the whole kinship thing I, I got into show. But then also before the show started, I was sitting next to this lovely older woman who kept dropping her program and her hearing device and she kept like you know like being like very uncomfortable like as she was trying to ease into the show i guess before it started and i'm not kidding just like 10 seconds before the curtain i guess or before the show officially started she turned to me and she said i wish i was better at being an old person oh wow and then the show starts. Ah, so I just want to say one thing, Jose. I like your interpretation of what the love figure in this show represented. And I hope that is what it represented. But the reason that it doesn't represent that to me is that at one point in the play, several interior elements appear right and so those things don't get to go with you when you die and so the idea of interior internal self-love being the thing that gets to go with you versus an external love it to me the kind of self-love you're talking about is one of the blue t-shirt characters and the love character that jumps into the grave is exterior Mm. To me, it very much was about the thing that matters in your life is relationships. Like, that is the lesson I took away. And again, I am certain that I'm also projecting my own experience (laughs) on this show, as we all are. And yet, that's very much the lesson I took away from the show. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious to know if other people, if anyone else shared that response. Yeah, and, and I guess I interpreted the love more as like the love you radiate outwards, the the love that you give to people, to things, to... Yeah. Well, then how did you interpret that love is humiliation? Hmm? That it's just like... <laughs> Let's just all project our own feelings. <laughs> um, that sometimes loving someone is exhausting. Mm-hmm. That sometimes you just give and give and give... And it's hard, but you still love. That was what it was to me. That not all love you give is good. And I I also have an interpretation (laughs) for that. Because the way I saw the humiliation thing was, I'm sorry for doing this again, but I'm going to talk about Sex and the City. So that episode where Carrie Bradshaw 
walks the runway and falls on her face. Like mm-hmm. loving yourself puts you through humiliation as well. Like for instance, like me, I don't like speaking in public, but I know that if I don't like to public speaking or whatever, I won't advance in my career, blah, 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 blah. Or even things as, you know, like asking someone out, like you're doing it because you want that couple thing that, that vulnerability you, yeah. that, but comes also with love. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. I think that in order to love yourself, you also need to, this is getting to like, it pray love, right? <laughs> I don't know, but a, little, a little side of counseling with your Maximu. I mean, I guess thank you, Brandon, for making us talk mm-hmm. about something. All right, moving on to Girl Be Heard, the show Blurred Lines at Here Art Center. So, Girl Be Heard is a show that works, it's not a show. Uh, Girl Be Heard is an organization that works with teenagers and young women to talk about social issues and to create works of performance centered on the in the involved ease that's not the right word the participants uh own experiences and they had a show i think it might have been their first show actually that was about gun violence and it was extremely well received i did not see it but it is apparently extraordinary. Yeah, I saw it. It's, it was called Nine Millimeter America, mm-hmm. and I think they may even take that into schools. Or yes, at oh, this wow. point. Yes, um, it, amazing show. And so, Blurred Lines is about rape culture, and there are about nine women, I want to say, uh, who perform a series of skits, and it takes on rape culture from so many different angles, but from the perspective of young women in this age range. And we didn't, they didn't state their age range, but I want to say it felt about like 15 to 25, like kind of in the sort of like high school, late high school, early college into college phase of life. And I thought this was very well done. I thought the young woman had just like shocking levels of maturity and self-awareness and things to offer this topic. I think this organization does amazing work and I love what they do and I was happy to see this show. I felt like we were in a very unified community in the room and all I could think was how do we get this show to men? Men need to see this show. They're not going to buy a ticket to show up. This should be part of like orientation at every fraternity in the country. Like how do we get the people who need to see this show into this show and to educate them and to realize how completely devastating and how rape culture is and how it impacts literally the lives of every single woman on the planet. Yeah. Like I said, I saw nine millimeter America a few years ago and it was just, blown away by how strong it was and how inspiring it was. I, I, now that I've seen two girl be heard shows, I just leave feeling so impressed with the knowledge that there are young activists like this out there doing the research, doing the work, bringing this into their communities. And it's very inspiring to know there are such well-educated activists coming up the pipeline. And I want to highlight a couple of these that I, that just, I, I loved so much. Um, we, we keep saying women, but there, one of the cast members, uh, Jesse Krebs is, uh, non-binary. I believe they, they used uh, they pronouns and they did a piece about that's called fuckability. That was just about their body in space that was beautiful and moving and just something I had honestly never seen on stage before while they uh, bound their breasts and talked about, their relationship with their own body. And something else that I really appreciate about Girl Be Heard is there's a lot of intersectionality talk. There's It deals a lot, not just with rape culture, but rape culture within different cultural communities. And there's a big section about uh, machismo and masculinity in the Hispanic community that was fantastic and not something I think we see on stage very much. And... 
oh gosh, it was uh, Makai Lewis did a a long monologue about the intersection of power and property and how that relates to sexuality uh, for black uh, women. And it was another thing that I had just literally never thought about and certainly not when I was, you know, 17, 18 years old, something I was aware of. So I love that they are sharing these stories. I think you're right, Lindsay, they need to take this into schools and into the community. And I think they do. Oh, yeah. They were even talking at the performance about like if folks have ideas or ways into universities or schools to please help them cooperate Mm -hmm. to do that because I think that's an active part of their programming. Yeah. They need to take the show to Congress. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I I think they were talking about taking it to DC when we were there, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I also really admired how there's a lot of skits in the show and all of them are so well versed in the form of each genre. Like, obviously, I'm a cliche, so my favorite one was the musical. Oh, the, yeah. the cell block tango that yeah. they did. That, but, was, that was very clever. I liked but it. But every, every single skit, the one you know, where there's a game show, to the ones mm-hmm. that were more like, uh, they used melodrama in a beautiful way. They also used, like, social drama. Mm-hmm. And each of them were so well-researched and mm-hmm. so... Ho- whole they felt mm-hmm. like so complete even if like most of them were like maybe what two to three minutes long yeah. and I was I was mind blown by that like I think all of this young women uh, if they choose to work in theater they're gonna be amazing I mean if yeah they're gonna be amazing I hope they stick around yeah well it's funny actually because the uh the director for this show Tiff Roma I actually saw in nine millimeter America so she's sort of come up from the ranks and, and did this. So it looks like they are, you know, continuing their, their career post. Around the world. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So we're not going to have a March preview episode due to travel schedules. So we're just going to tell you what we have coming up that we're excited about. And then we will be back with another review episode in mid March. So Jose, you're up. I have too many shows. I know I can see your list. <laughs> oh, okay. It looks awesome. I'm sorry. Like I'm, yeah, I'm already like booked for like almost every night in March. But oh there's there's a few shows that I'm particularly excited about. So I'll go through them real fast. I promise. The first one is Much Ado About Nothing, being done by the people at Shakespeare Exchange. So every time they do something, it's gonna be worth your time. So it looks very '80s poppy, right? Yeah. All the ads do. That'll be fun. It looks a lot, like a lot of fun. Then uh, Omega Kids by Noah Mees who's, uh, this show made me think about that, uh, now I'm forgetting the name of the book, that Cavalier and Clay book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, because it's about uh, two boys bonding over comic book characters I love. The thing that got me really excited about this show was that Noah, besides being a playwright, is also a production designer who's, who did uh, Natasha Pierre on Broadway. Oh, wow. So he created a comic book for this play. So if I'm not mistaken, and I really hope I'm not because I want one, I think the program is basically the comic book. Wow. Nice. Yes. That's very cool. Right? The The next show is Sundown Yellow Moon, which is a musical. Yay. Co-sign this yeah. one. Yeah, being co-produced by, by Ars Nova. And it's by Rachel Bonds, and it has music by the Bengtsons, who we mentioned in our festival episode in January, the first episode. And it has Lily Cooper, so yay. Uh, next up, the Moors, it's Playwright's Realm and everything that done at Playwright's Realm, I will go see. This play is by Jen Silverman and it's about the Bronte sisters. So it sounds amazing. Then, I'm almost done, I promise. Then we have uh, Pool Play is coming back. I didn't see it the first time around. It's a play by Erin Mee that takes place in a pool. This time it's going to take place at Waterside Plaza. And it's, as far as I understand it, it's a series of episodes, tiny plays that all revolve around water. So I think in the original incarnation, it had like synchronized like water ballet and like a boat at some point, like a, I'm assuming like a canoe or something. <laughs> and the audience sits around the pool with their feet in the water. There's also dry seats if you don't want to get wet. So there's that. You can put your feet in the water? Yeah. Like oh, you, wow. s- you, you sit around the pool. the pool. Yeah. Oh. 
but some people don't like that, so they're gonna they're gonna they be in the yeah. no fun. Is yeah, what they, are. they should not. I'm afraid I'm in the no fun category. <laughs> no, you go. I'm gonna show up in a speedo and everything. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last thing that I want to mention is something that TDF is doing their very first festival of uh, immersive theater. It's, co it's called Performateria. It runs from March 20th to the 24th at Baruch Performing Arts Center. And what's going to happen here is that 15 off-of-Broadway companies are going to do micro-versions of immersive shows in this one space. So the description basically says that you're walking and there's going to be a show happening at the bar, then there's going to be a show happening around the corner. And yeah, I mean, it sounds great. And tickets, I forgot what tickets are, but they're super affordable. I think they're under $20. Yeah, they're mm -hmm. cheap. Yeah, so I made it, yay. Awesome. Liz? Uh, yeah, I'm going to go see All the Fine Boys, which is uh, written and directed by Erica Schmidt. It's gonna, it's the new group with Abigail Breslin and Joe Tippett, dreamy Joe Tippett. Um, and it's about these two girls who are in high school in like the late 80s, and they've decided they're going to get boyfriends. And the way they go about that. And frankly, it reminds me a lot of my own high school. It sounds a little bit like a female centric. This is our youth a little bit. I don't know. The whole thing sounds very interesting. I'm excited about it. Um, and Joe Tippett. I like Joe Tippett. One day Joe Tippett will be in a show where he doesn't have to uh, have a crush on underage girls. But you know, um, <laughs> one of these days, <laughs> I think he's doing like three or four shows in a row where this has happened. So Uh, we got that. I got the Light Years at Playwrights Horizons, which is the new um, debate society play. They did Jacuzzi a couple years ago at Ars Nova that I love. It was so weird and had a full jacuzzi on stage, which was really nice and toasty uh, seeing it in January. I remember like walking in with my park and I was like, ah, it feels like a sauna in here. It was wonderful. But um, so they're doing a show at Playwrights Horizons that is about a uh, the man who tried to build a, I believe it was a 10,000 seat theater for the Chicago World's Fair, and it was never completed. And I don't know if you guys read the book Devil in the White City, which I read recently, which is about the, the whole process of putting together the Chicago World's Fair, running alongside the story of H.H. H. Holmes, H. H. Holmes, America's first serial killer. And <laughs> I'm weird, I'm weird, it's fine, it's fine. Um, but the story of the Chicago World's Fair is so fascinating, and I love this idea. And, and this guy was mentioned in that book, and of course I can't remember his name. And the way, the, the fact that something so big didn't get finished, and the way they hit a lot of those roadblocks along the way in the, in the World's Fair. So I'm interested in the story, and I think the debate society is fantastic. Cool. Yeah. All right, I want to mention just a couple of things to add. First is the International Human Rights Art Festival at Dixon Place, March 3rd through 5th. It is bringing together more than 70 artists and 40 events, all oriented towards human rights advocacy. Sounds like there are many interesting artists and many fabulous events going on there and certainly very timely conversations to be had. So I'm going to try to hit up a couple of the different events there. Second, one of my absolute favorite theater company it, companies in New York City, actually like responsible for me getting super into the indie theater scene is the Amoralists. And they are doing a new play, Nibbler, by Ken Urban. I can truly say I've enjoyed every single show of theirs I've ever seen. I mean, some obviously are better than others, but they put together great work. And so I am very excited to see what they're up to next. And then the last thing I want to mention is that the play company has a new play going up soon called Via by Guillermo Calderon. He is a Chilean playwright. He has had shows in New York in the past. He often writes about the resistance under Pinochet. This play is also about that topic in part. And I think the play company does great work. I have enjoyed Calderon's plays that I've seen in the past. And so I'm super excited to see this one too. All right. Anything else to add? Or are we at a wrap? That's all I got. 
Thank you, everyone. Thank you, listeners, for being patient. We're happy to be back with you. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of the Max Muth Theater and Performance Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or opinions that differ from our own, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us all on Twitter. Maximu is at Maximu. Jose is at Jose Solis Mayen. Liz is at Miss Liz Richards. And I'm at Lindsay Behrens. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, we have merch. You can buy coffee mugs, tote bags, and stickers with your favorite Maximu-isms on them. You can get to the store via Maximu.com. All proceeds go to helping the podcast improve our sound quality. We'll see you back here for our next episode on March 15th. See you then. Theatrical Media 